Man, I'm excited to be here today, excited to share with you. I've been gone a lot this summer, and uh, you may, somebody said, yes, you have. I wasn't on vacation. <laughs> I just start arguing with somebody in the crowd. <laughs> well, I was told you weren't here much either, so whatever. <laughs> um, I don't even know who said that. Luke chapter 9. Let's just go to the Bible before I lose my cool this morning. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Luke chapter... <laughs> Can we recover? I have no idea. Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke chapter 9. I've, I started uh, a series on a Wednesday, which is not something I normally do, but we're actually going to be in a series called Listen to Jesus for the next few weeks. And I've, I've got some things I want to share with you in Luke 9 that I shared on Wednesday. And this is kind of the base for everything we're going to share over the next few weeks together. And uh, so, yes, I'm going to be home for a few weeks in a row. <laughs> I better see you, whoever <laughs> you was. All right, Luke chapter 9, I'm going to start, Luke chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 28, Luke 9, 28. Uh, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. They spoke about his departure, which he, he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love many translations have in parentheses. He did not know what he was saying. Peter did that a lot, didn't he? He didn't know what he was talking about a lot. Kind of like this person who just accused me of being gone all summer. I'm, I'll leave you alone. Verse 34 says, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared over her in the row she was sitting. and cut. I, I got to. I got I to gotta move on. I got to move on. I forgive. Move on. While he, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you are revealed in your word. We thank you that even when we go through things that make it difficult for us to see you, we can always go back to your word to see you because your word is the revelation of you. And so help us to never forget the power of your word and help us this morning to hear what you have to say and not just hear it, but to receive it 
And not just to receive it, but to believe it and act on it. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. amen. I love this because it's just another case of Peter kind of getting ahead of himself and realizing after he said some things he probably shouldn't have said that it's probably best for him to be quiet. And God says, hey, you know, I appreciate Moses and I appreciate Elijah. And I know this is a, a massive moment and you're kind of just reacting to the moment. And how many of us do that? We just kind of react in the moment. And I can see myself doing this in the moment. And the Bible says here that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. And God kind of covers the situation and he says to them, he says, hey, Moses and Elijah were great. But this is my son. Listen to him. Because Jesus came to tell the complete story of who God is. Moses and Elijah and even Abraham and all of the Old Testament saints, all of the Old Testament prophets, they were unable to adequately describe who God is. Sometimes they got it wrong. Just read some of Job. Read a little bit of Ecclesiastes. Everything that is said about God isn't actually true about God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't really the best uh, characterization of God because it's incomplete. Jesus is the best characterization of God. The Old Testament, they do their best. The Old Testament is just basically a group of people who are encountering God trying to describe that encounter. And like Peter, sometimes they want to do something that isn't really what God wants to do. And they express something about God that really isn't the heart of God. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament, you read the story of Job, I really want to encourage you not to look at the Job in light of Job's situation and how that story is presented. I'd really like for you to look at that story in light of Jesus. What you have in Job is, is the oldest book in the Old Testament. You, this is before Abraham. This is before Moses. This is a man who the Bible says is in a situation because Satan has entered into the throne room. He's having a conversation with God about Job. God allows whatever the hedge is for Job to be taken down. And Satan is allowed to attack Job's life. And sometimes if you're not careful, you'll read that story and that will scare you to death. Because you'll think maybe God's taken the hedge down over my life. Well, I don't know what the hedge was for Job, but I know who the hedge is for you and me. The hedge is Jesus, and Jesus isn't coming off his throne anytime soon. As a matter of fact, the whole picture of Satan having a conversation with God is a good <laughs> indicator for you and I that that's a heaven without a mediator. That's a heaven without an intercessor. That so even if Satan tried to talk to God about you and I, he'd have to go through Jesus. Come on, somebody. So I, I'm just trying to help you that, yes, the Old Testament, it is good for what it is, but it is a old covenant. It is an Old Testament. It is not the proper description of God. The proper description of God is everything that you see and read in the Bible about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of everything that God is. So I want you to be delivered. Over the next few weeks, I'm praying for a deliverance in our lives from any beliefs that we have about God that we cannot find in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through all whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to know who God is, don't look to Moses, look to Jesus. Come on, somebody. If you want to know who God is, don't look at David, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is, don't look to Elijah, look to Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. himself if you have seen me you have seen the father nobody in the old testament can claim that Moses can't go if you saw me you saw the father Elijah can't say if you see me you see the father no Jesus alone can say if you have seen me you have seen the father so my prayer for you is that you would be delivered from any belief that you have about God that you cannot find in the person of Jesus Christ can somebody in the room say Amen. Now that's one thing that it's easy to get us to come into agreement on. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And we believe that. We believe that if we've seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. But what we struggle to believe is that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. (laughs) God's nature, the Bible teaches, is revealed in Jesus But the Bible also teaches that my new nature is now revealed in Christ. So I refuse to look at God through anyone but Jesus, right? But I need to understand as well that God refuses to look at me through anyone but Jesus. Come on. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So when Hebrews 4 and 16 tells us something like this, he says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's not just an invitation. It's a statement about your position. He's inviting you into a place that is so so full of the glory of God and the presence of God that under the old covenant, the priests would die if they entered it, not fully cleansed of their sins. He is inviting you into that place, not just as an invitation, but it is a declaration about your position. He's saying to you, you belong in the presence. You belong in the throne room. You belong around God and the angels Isaiah talked about who are circling the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You belong there. You don't belong on the outside looking in. You belong on the inside with God in the presence of God because you have the same righteousness as God. I can even sense the apprehension sometimes when you say stuff like that. Like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Even though I just read you a scripture that says 
He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I can say to you right after I say that, you have just as much righteousness as God, and you're like, that doesn't seem right. I can read you a verse that says exactly what I said, but you don't take it that way. How do I know? Because most of us are still trying to pray our way in and read our way in and serve our way in and give our way in and try our way into a place we are already seated. So you belong before the throne. When you believe you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you will start to believe that you have access to his world. And your Bible reading and your prayer life and your serving will turn into something different because no longer are you trying to read yourself into a place you already sit. You are living from the throne room. So I'm asking you to stop trying to pray your way into acceptance and believe you already have it. Ephesians 2 and 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is not a future event. This is a present reality in your life. You're like, nah, nah, <laughs> I can't be. And the reason you believe that is because you believe that your behavior trumps his righteousness. We're going to talk about this for a minute because how many things have we missed because we didn't feel like we earned it or were worthy of it? You got to look at your life and it's the same as every person, almost every person, except for maybe Josiah who was too young to know the difference. He was eight years old when God called him. But for most of the people who had lived a little while, when God called them, they were like, me? You're out of your mind. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because, why would they say stuff like that? I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too small. I'm irrelevant. I don't matter. I don't have the strength. I don't have the background. I can't do this. And so they would put all of their disqualifications out there, right? And you and I do the same thing. We talk ourselves out of the throne room, not because of how we view God, but because of how we view ourselves. And your negative view of you is unbelief. Okay. Let me give you just a few things that, that, that we have to understand. Romans 8 is a really good chapter. Where Romans 8 starts off with, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can go to the next verse can you go to Romans 8 2 I didn't give you that one I don't know if they can get to Romans 8 and 2 but some people think that Romans 8 and 2 is what the King James version version of the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh right have you ever heard that before anybody in the room heard that no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh that's not verse 2 that's in no reliable transcripts. As a matter of fact, in almost every uh, 
translation that you read, NIV, NLT, ESV, all of them, none of them say that but the King James Version. That was put there. It's not in any of the reliable manuscripts. That was put there as a way to control your behavior. But New Covenant, your behavior is not controlled by fear. Your behavior is controlled by proximity to the throne. Okay. So he says, he says you, you don't behave to get free from condemnation. You are free from condemnation because you are in Christ. Come on, man. So this is an addition that was put there. So your freedom from condemnation is not connected to your behavior. You don't behave well to escape condemnation. You escape condemnation and then your behavior changes because of your freedom. Let me give you a verse. One, Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. It says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Notice this. You were once alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Not his. <laughs> Your behavior made you feel like you were an enemy. So God had to come and do something that would be greater than your behavior so that your behavior would never again make you feel like an enemy. Right? You were not far from God because you were far from God. You were far from God because you thought you were. Alienation is an issue of thinking, and that is why the word, when, when, when people are asked, what must I do to be saved? The command is repent. Repentance does not mean stop your bad behavior. Repentance means change your mind. If I can get you to believe that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus then by default, your behavior will change. Because you behave in a way that is consistent with who you believe you are. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So you behave in a way that is consistent with how you identify yourself. That's why repentance is necessary for entrance into the kingdom because not only do you have to see God different, you have to see you different because if you don't see you different, it doesn't matter how God sees you, you will never change. That's why it took Israel 40 years to make a journey that was actually 11 days. Why? Because God wasn't able? No. Because their salvation wasn't complete? No. Was the salvation of Israel from Egypt full and complete? Absolutely. When God saved Israel from Egypt, Egypt would never be a problem for Israel again. And they actually tried to catch up, Egypt did, with Israel. And what ended up happening to them and Pharaoh? They got drowned in the Red Sea. So God completely dealt with their enemies in salvation. Their biggest enemy in the wilderness wasn't Egypt. It was themselves. Okay. 
Again, because it doesn't matter what God says about you if you don't believe it. (laughs) Israel's sin, when God lost it with them and was like, okay, that's it. This group can't go in. When was it? It was after they did what they did in Numbers 13. Moses had sent 12 spies into the promised land. God said, this is where I'm taking you. This is what you can have. Trust me. So Moses sends 12 spies in to see it. They go in and it's everything that God said it was. But it's occupied with giants. So they come back and when they give the description of the land that God talked about and promised them, they say it this way. Yeah, it's got all the stuff God said it would have, but there are giants in the land. And in Numbers 13 and 33, they say something that is the definition of unbelief. They say, we saw the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Numbers 14, God comes to Moses and he says, no one who said that gets to go into the promise. There were two, Joshua and Caleb, who had a different report. If you read Numbers 13, Joshua and Caleb, their response is not, God said. Caleb goes, we can. Because until you believe what God said to the degree that it affects you, to where it becomes your identity, then God can say it all day long. If you don't believe we can, you never will. So Caleb says we can. So listen, I need you, please hear me because I want to deal with sin. This is not me being soft on sin. As a matter of fact, sin is so costly, it costs Jesus his life. It has such a bearing on you that it took the life of Jesus to free you from it. Sin is serious, but I want you to understand where sin comes from so that you can actually deal with it because you're not going to stop sinning because you're super afraid of God. No more than you're going to stop behaving badly because you're super afraid of your parents. You know what you're going to do? You're just going to lie to them. Okay. Nobody wants to admit that in the room today. Some of y'all are sitting by your parents. Nobody wants to go, amen. (laughs) Israel's sin was that they believed a lie about themselves. God had dealt with the complaining. God had dealt with the idol worship. God's like, I, I, can, I, can work, I can work with you. I can work with you. I can work with you. But as soon as they said, we can't, God said, I can't. I can't work with that. I can't work with unbelief. I can work with failure. I can work with not enough. I can work with insufficient. 
I can work with broken stuff, but I can't, I can't work with unbelief. So let me give you some verses. John 16 and 9 says, the world's sin is unbelief in me. That's what Jesus says. He said, sin is the result of people not believing in me. Romans 14 and 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 3 and 19 says what? They did not enter in, talking about Israel, because of what? Their unbelief. It doesn't say because they built a golden calf, because they took on foreign wives, because they, because they went to the club. It doesn't say that. It was unbelief. Because all that other stuff is the result of unbelief. Why? Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament means simply to miss the mark. When you sin, what you are doing is you are living in a way that is not consistent with your design. So the root issue of your life is not behavior, it's identity. There is a lie that you have believed about yourself and it's causing you to behave the way you're behaving. It's the, it's the reason why you cannot stop even though you want to because what you're doing has no longer, it's no longer something you do, it's who you believe you are. So you have to have a view of righteousness that is independent from your behavior. My only way free is to have a view of righteousness that is independent from my behavior. Until I believe so much about my righteousness that it affects my behavior. Because if you don't, you will for the rest of your life be trying to modify your behavior. And Jesus did not come to modify people's behavior. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of other religions that are about behavior modification and have a whole lot higher moral standards than even Christianity. But there's only one faith where the leader of that faith left his throne, came from heaven to earth, died for your sins, saved you and reconciled you and made you something you could never become in your own effort. Every other religion requires your effort. Faith in Jesus requires his effort, his finished work, what he did for you, and you, all you do is believe in that. But we still don't like that. Sin is what you do. Righteousness is who you are. That's why in the New Testament, John would say, hey, uh, listen, um, if any one of you, he's talking to Christians. He says, if any one of you say you have no sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. The truth in you reveals to you that you have sin. But what do we do about that sin? He says, if you, he says, if you have sin, what do you do? You have an advocate with the Father, even Christ Jesus. And what you do now in the new covenant, when you confess your sin, is you don't get more saved. 
<laughs> you don't become more holy. The day you got saved was the most righteous, most holy you will ever be. You don't get more saved. You don't get more righteous. You don't get more righteous than the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Some of y'all, I mean, it's quiet in here. Some of y'all must believe you do because, no, no. When I ask for forgiveness, what I'm doing is I, I, am, I am alleviating the guilt and the shame of what I have done. I'm allowing Jesus to take that for me so that I can walk free from condemnation. That's what I'm doing. I'm not asking for forgiveness to be saved. He's talking to believers. The other day I was in my car and uh, my uh, wife, I'm, I've, I was, I've kind of was going through something and my wife has been really sweet to me through this. And it was becoming a little annoying, like how sweet she was being. So I'm kind of like, just kind of moping. She reaches over and she grabs my hand. She goes, hey, honey. And I said, not now. And what I realized later was she was being so good to me. And at the root of it was I didn't believe I deserved her kindness. So I rejected it. So I had to repent and say, hey, I'm sorry I didn't receive that kindness you wanted to show me because I just sometimes don't believe that I deserve that. This is why you continue in sin. Because you don't believe you're deserving of kindness. This is why you reject conviction. You don't reject conviction because you love being addicted. You reject conviction because it's the, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And we, what we can't stand about God is that he's good to us. Because everything else in your life is merit-based. So God makes no sense to us sometimes because it's not merit-based. We're like, why, why are you being good to me? You got anybody in your life who like every time you do something nice for them, they wonder what your ulterior motive is? Like, why do you, what are you trying to get? And God's like, I don't want, I just want you. But what about my, my son paid for that. I, I just, come on in. I, and here's the thing about us. <laughs> Anything that seems too good to be true, it's hard to believe. That's why the gospel is so difficult for us. Because it feels too good to be true. That is not what I've earned. It's not about that. That kind of love is not what I deserve. You're missing the point.
Israel overestimated the giants in the land because Israel underestimated themselves. Part of believing in him is believing in his belief in you. Did you hear me? Part of believing in him is believing in his belief in you. (laughs) Part of humility is agreement with God. Confidence delivers us from condemnation. First John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. He said the only reason you're still afraid is because you still think that you're going to get judged for all that stuff you've done. But perfect love casts out all that fear because we realize that Jesus took that judgment and he took our place. And all that remains for us as followers of Jesus is the grace, mercy, and kindness, and goodness, and acceptance of God. Hebrews talks a lot about how Israel was unable to enter into rest. They were saved. But Hebrews says they never entered into rest. And not just the ones who died in the wilderness. Hebrews 4 tells us that even the ones that went into the promise, they failed to enter into rest. God had completely saved them. Listen to me, you can be saved and not experiencing rest today. Because the invitation that Jesus gave in Matthew 11 and 28 was not really even salvation. It was rest. He didn't say, come to me and I'll save you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. If you're still concerned about whether or not you're going to make heaven, you have not entered rest. Salvation is the starting point. Rest is the invitation. Even salvation itself doesn't mean just to be saved from something. It means to be saved unto, unto someone. The idea of, of, of being saved is not just I, I escape judgment. The idea of being saved is that I'm made whole. That's what it really means in the Greeks, to be made whole. Why is this important? A generation died in the wilderness, saved, but never entering rest. A generation made it to the promise, in the promise, but never entered into rest. Why? Because rest has nothing to do with the location or destination. God's invitation is into rest is not an invitation into heaven. Up there. God's invitation in, into rest is an invitation to heaven on earth. So salvation is not even about a location. Salvation, because it requires repentance, is more than a location or destination. It's a state of mind. When we enter into rest, you know what we've entered into? It's more than a nap. It's more than a vacation, which clearly some of y'all think I've been on all summer. It's more than that. It's immovable trust. Trust in what? I heard someone say this just recently, and I've been wrestling with this for weeks, and I don't know what to do with it. 
They said, did you ever notice in the story that an unusual amount of storms were attracted to Jesus? So many storms in the New Testament. They said the reason that the storms followed Jesus is because they wanted to be tamed. They were not there to interrupt the progress of Jesus. They were there to be tamed by Jesus. They were going to their maker and saying, we're out of order, help us. I don't even know what to do with that because I feel like that's me. I'm in chaos. And I want to go to Jesus today because he's the one who can bring order to the storm that's raging inside of me. And I can't, I can't the chaos doesn't stop until I can get with Jesus. I want to give you an assignment this week, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I'm out here telling you to rest and I'm going to give you work, but this is not work. This is not work. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says this, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we see Jesus, we see the Father, but when the Father sees Jesus, he sees us. What's my role in all of this? Colossians 1, 12 through 14 tell us, giving joyful thanks to the Father. (laughs) Why? Look what he says. He qualified you. Who did it? He did. He has rescued you. Who did it? He did. He's brought you in. Who did that? He did that. He forgave you. He redeemed you. Look at all that. None of that says you. What's my role, God? Thank me for what I did. That's the definition of salvation. Thank God. What do I do for the rest of my life? Thank God. I don't, when, I, when I wake up tomorrow, what do I do for God? Thank God. How do I help God this week, Rob? How do I help him save me? You can't. If you're saved, you're already saved. You are waiting for his appearance, but you are already saved. I love it, and I need to close because we have another service. But I love, my brother talked about the Good Samaritan last week. I love this story because when the Samaritan drops that man off at that space where he says, hey, um, it's my friend I just met. Here's some money to take care of all of his problems. And then he goes, and I'm coming back. And when I come back, if he's incurred any expenses while I was gone, I'll pay for that when I get back. So the Bible says about Jesus that when he shows up, 
He's coming to bring salvation to those who are waiting. You know what's waiting on you as a believer? Not hell, not condemnation, not fear, salvation. The thing you've been waiting on, the thing that you already are, you'll get to see him face to face. So Father, in Jesus' name, will you stand up on your feet with me today? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the confidence that we have today to come into your throne room boldly. To be close to you. In Jesus' name, that Ken said, amen. Amen. I got to let you go. We've got to clear out this parking lot, but... Our prayer team will remain up front if anyone needs prayer. We'd love to meet with you and talk with you.